It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure 1-800-BE-READY that's 1-800-237-3239 a public service message brought to you by the Ad Council my husband and I met at a strip mall dance it was a beautiful old strip mall I had seen my husband before at a big rally at the highway on ramp for all the men who had enlisted he was going to war Four years later, we married at the little convenience store downtown. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Our guest today is Gary Eckelbarger, author of Three Days in the Shenandoah, as well as a new book on Lincoln's nomination in 1860. Hope to get to that later, uh, later on in the show. But we're talking now about these three days, the battles of Front Royal and Winchester in 1862, when Stonewall Jackson uh, attacked the army of Nathaniel Banks and defeated it, didn't capture it whole, had an opportunity to capture it possibly, but uh, certainly defeated it soundly and caused Abraham Lincoln as commander-in-chief to intervene and send McDowell's uh, core-sized uh, army away from Fredericksburg and off toward uh, toward the valley instead of cooperating with McClellan and capturing Richmond. Uh, Gary, as you were talking about that, as we got to the break, you made the point that in some ways we can't really tell with second-guessing. McClellan might have uh, captured Richmond with the extra troops of McDowell, but he also might have just you know, dithered those away as well. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not we, – we can never tell, but if you're looking at a decision at the time that it's made and based on the, the previous performance of the, of the people involved – my feeling is, and, and here I'm acknowledging that McClellan's probably one of the worst things that happened to the Army of Potomac overall because of, because of his inability to um, lead a good offensive on a battlefield. Still, um, it, was a, it, was a, 
it was Lincoln's um, first active role as a commander in chief, where he's actually writing dispatches in the War Department. And I think he, I think the Union would have been better served this day if he was not in, uh, if he wasn't in that telegraph office reading those messages, because I can't imagine that he would have made the same decision um, if he had a few hours uh, uh, to think things over. It just looks like it was all done. Uh, in a very short period of time, not planned, because by noon noon on, on the 24th, he had planned to send McDowell's entire army to uh, McClellan, had McClellan um, ordered not to move. He's already five miles from Richmond, ordered him to move very cautiously let, until McDowell got there. And then uh, four hours later, he's telling McClellan that McDowell's going to the valley, and then the day after that, he tells McClellan um, that now appears to be the time to attack or um, or forget come it. back to the defenses of Washington. Well, think about it from McClellan's standpoint. You know, the whole mission was based on getting those 38,000 men and 80 cannons down on your right flank, and um, it, it defies military doctrine for him to have been successful against a Confederate army that had both of its flanks protected by um, uh, fairly parallel rivers uh, on that Yorktown Peninsula. So McClellan uh, expected and needed McDowell's force which Lincoln clearly agreed with, uh, at least through those morning hours of the 24th, and then pulled the plug on it. Well, let me ask this about this book, and this is a little more of a, a difficult question, I suppose. Um, right. It is a question that came up uh, last year. Uh, I had uh, a show dealing with another uh, Shenandoah Valley book uh, by Scott Patchen, who I believe you know. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, I asked him, and I, I can ask you this, I think, because your book actually answers the question, but I think it's a subject worth discussing. Uh, the question I asked him was, why should anyone care about the uh, small bit of Shenandoah Valley history, in his case, 1864 campaign, uh, that we should bother to read a couple hundred pages of, of intense tactical detail about it? Now, your book answers that question because, uh, as we've been talking about, the Tactics are not the only focus of the book. You, you, you show the strategic context to show how this battle influenced larger issues. But is there an argument to be made that, uh, in general, Civil War battle writing is, uh, uh, as I said in the, during the break, uh, an analogy to Playboy magazine? Uh, it's fun to look at. It may tell you more about the specific uh, uh, individual in, in case of the magazine pictures or the specific battle in case of a battle book, but you don't actually learn anything new about uh, women in general, just more about one particular woman um, or people in general or anything in general. It's just fun to look at. Uh, uh, I was wondering where you were going to go with that teaser. <laughs> That's well, great. So, well, I'm glad you explained that one. <laughs> I well, get it now. I get it. Um, the answer, and you know, this goes back to um, historians, uh, academic historians, and others writing from the field. Uh, and you could probably answer to this. You know that there is a, uh, there's almost a pride in academia not to go into um, uh, when they teach courses in American history is to, uh, you know, American history one stops at the start of the Civil War, and American history two begins at the end of the Civil War, and they, you know, there's this. Uh, almost inner pride sometimes in saying that they can teach a whole um, two semesters of a history course and not have to go into full details about Civil War battles. And the whole point is I, I, 
I understand from that aspect is that sometimes people um, you have you have really two different audiences sometimes, and it's trying to trying to get one interested in in the other's uh, point of view as well. The, the tactics uh, appeal to um, a pretty large audience of Civil War aficionados who like to read about um, how battles are fought. Um, well, well, and that is one reason why I write it, but I think um, I like to, to write about the battles that have an impact on, on, um, on, on how the war is going to be waged later on, and that's why I, I, I made a point to include the... Uh, the opposing war departments in here, because as I, I said earlier in the show, the, those two little battles and the movements on the day in between those two battles had a huge impact on the decision-making in the war department. And, well, and, and I think your, your book, the reason I, I feel comfortable asking you these questions is because your book does answer them, as you just right. said, you do provide more. But it seems to me there are some books um, that do appeal, as you say, to a large audience, but then Playboy has a large audience, too. Right. Uh, it, it's just it, that... If it's the first time those battles are going to have um, that much attention um, placed upon them, it's still new history, because well, but, that, but I you, guess that would be the that would be my answer to that. Well, well, I, let me, I'm just I'm pushing you mercilessly here. <laughs> no, yeah, that's fine. I, I guess I'm. This is the whole reason of, of bringing. It. I still am so glad you. You explained the teaser because I I wasn't ready to answer that. Well, well I'll, I'll, <laughs> to carry the analogy further, you, you know, the first book on uh, Front Royal tells us something we didn't know before. The first book on, you know, Richmond, Kentucky tells us something. The first book on right. uh, Belmont, but the same argument you made the the picture of Miss July without her clothes on tells us something we didn't know what she looks like. Miss August is someone else. Miss September is someone else. But we're not learning anything. We're just getting more pretty pictures. We're, well, if you think I mean, about history as a, as um, as the story of um, of men and events of our past, you know, I'll, let me just take it from mine. Let's say I didn't include the War Department actions in the books, and mm-hmm. we've, already, we've already acknowledged that part of it. Let's just look at the tactics of the battle. Right. What I've done, uh, what I think I've done in in, in not just uh, giving a new giving the first detailed story about the battles, but you see a. You see a tendency in, in a commander like Stonewall Jackson, who is uh, one of the most famous uh, commanders in, in military history, that I don't think any other uh, author of Stonewall Jackson has portrayed at least in length before. And I see a, a continuing tendency that people can now follow for the rest of his military career. So you learn a lot more about him as a commander. And what I've discovered with Jackson is that he's not a very good offensive tactician, um, that he... he enters his troops in piecemeal, and I kind of went into um, um, a full explanation about this in the epilogue as well, but that he's, he's a very successful commander and accomplishes his mission, uh, but it's, it's kind of a lesson in, uh, that the, the end product of the job gets done is more important than how, uh, than how that task is accomplished. But when you really um, pull open that curtain and peer into it, you see that uh, some of our, our greatest uh, uh, military commanders, uh, Civil War and otherwise, have have some interpersonal flaws and and um, and uh, you know are are not as uh, stellar in all aspects of their of their generalship and uh, and this is this is new information. Well, and I I, I would almost argue it well it's a new interpretation as much as new information, right. but I think it's a strong point of the book, and I, I'm glad you brought that up too, because. That, the epilogue really does bring us out uh, after going through uh, these three days in which Jackson makes a number of decisions that 
you wouldn't make if you had perfect knowledge. Of course, none of them have perfect knowledge of what's happening on the other side of the hill. Uh, it's understandable why he makes the decisions he does, given fatigue and weather and, and uh, uh, lack of information. But when it's all done after one seemingly ill-judged decision after another for three days, suddenly the battle ends successfully, and he is the Lion of the South. People are praising him as the greatest general since Caesar. Uh, and all he's done is make one mistake after another. It, it's really eye-opening uh, that that is good generalship, actually. Uh, he won the battle. That, that's the bottom line. You just answered, you just answered the question, then. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. About, well, I why, think that... about why, we, why we peer into details into these battles. If it's, uh, if it's not just what happens on the battlefield, but we actually can see, um, uh, reveal things about... Uh, you know our famous names from our past, and uh, and, and look at them. You know the, the whole idea when I went into the book was not to be a revisionist, and you know I go in this never uh, with an agenda. It's uh, just to try to explain some things that I never knew before, and that got me interested in it. So I let the I let the research and the and my discoveries basically direct direct the manuscript, and and so it's always a. It's always a new discovery for me when I, when I, when I get the story down, and I've got something that I never expected when I started it. Which is certainly the hallmark of someone who's, you know, taking a historical approach to the work. You don't start out with your conclusion and work backwards. Right. Um, just to, to throw in a pedantic note, the, the term revisionist in, in Civil War scholarship goes back, of course, to James Randall and his yeah. uh, cohort of the 1930s. And it was a proud title that they bore, capital R revisionists, the ones who were revising earlier uh, theories. Now, they in turn have been uh, uh, revised and passed up. But but, uh, it tends to get used in modern political discourse to mean uh, some bad guy who's changing our treasured past when when you know, as well as I do, if you weren't going to write something different about the past, why would you start in the first place? Right. In other words, I'm... uh, Revision revision shouldn't be a pejorative if um, exactly if it, it's if it's not agenda driven. Well, okay? exactly that's correct. Yeah. Yes, it, 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 the the agenda is to to determine uh, uh, as best one can what what happened and, and what mattered as uh, among the many things that happened. And, correct. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I, th- I think your Jackson uh, analysis does certainly contribute to to understanding of, of the Civil War. Um, since uh, uh, this is just the kind of, of discussion, I'm, I'm so inspired by the new semester starting and all the discussions I get to have that I'm uh, full of, of difficult questions, and, and you're the lucky recipient. Uh, but I'll throw one more at you uh, regarding this book, and then we'll get to the Lincoln book. In in some of the the uh, battle scenes, uh, as as is the nature of war, men get killed. That's that's fighting means killing, as, as Nathan Bedford Forrest said. Uh, and I don't think any serious reader or scholar would say there should be no references to killing or uh, blood. That that would be an absurd and, and uh, uh, just an absurd way to approach this, to, to whitewash it, to censor it. But on occasion, the details with which you describe entry or exit wounds or, or the ways in which individuals were killed, I admit I found troubling as falling in between, uh, they, they were not enough to establish the, the horror of war. 
I guess no intelligent reader would go into this book without already being fully aware of the horror of war. Uh, and thus there's no need to rub one's nose in it. And yet they were, <clears throat> and yet it was sufficiently gory at times as to, I would say, make me uncomfortable. That uh, is it necessary to go this far? If you're going to go this far, why not go farther and just just lay it all out there? It all by- well, first of all, I want to make sure. Are you comfortable now? <laughs> I mean, you're, no. I guess the point is when you when I think what you're referring to was. Um, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, was the description of the, the saber cuts and the saber wounds and the cavalry attacks? That, that was one, but there were others. Well, let me, let me at least answer from that standpoint. Sure. Okay. Um, the idea of writing it um, that way was not to be like, uh, uh, not for my personal bloodlust, but the, um, in the Civil War, it's usually, uh, oh, let's just, it's, the, all the stories about cavalry charges against infantry and using and the cavalrymen using sabers as their weapons it tends to be pretty uh, apocryphal and um, uh, and there's a lot of embellished stories. This is probably one of the few times uh, at least in in um, in early Civil War history where you actually see uh, a successful cavalry charge upon infantry and and I thought it would be my responsibility to show. Um, uh, through portraying the horror of how the the saber wounds um, can can actually um, uh, can uh, can crush an entire force that that well outnumbers the cavalrymen that are attacking it. So I talk about the 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 number of tons of horse flesh pounding down the road. I talk about the viciousness of the cuts. Otherwise, if I just gave it a general paragraph description and said. Uh, these four companies of uh, 140 horse soldiers routed 740 men. Uh, you'd have no idea how that could possibly happen. So if if I explain it in full detail, when uh, including the horror of watching the the cavalry uh, uh, saber slashing against the infantry, now you understand why everybody all of a sudden is um, saying "feet don't fail me now," so to speak, and running to the hills. They're they're trying to escape the horror, and that's how the, these. Uh, small numbers of, of cavalrymen can route a huge infantry force. It's because they inflicted panic. And the only way to appreciate the panic is to describe the kind of things that are inflicted that, that creates the panic. Look, we are going to take another break. I want to get back to that point because I think it's very interesting. It's a very good, interesting response that I had not thought about, and, and we'll talk about it more. We'll come back and do that in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 